All right, good to see everybody again. I hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving. I wanted to make sure that we kept our momentum going in our study. I know that a lot of people are traveling and commuting, but I wanted to make sure that we finished our study through these various ecumenical councils. We have studied the first ecumenical council of Nicaea in 325, the second ecumenical council of Constantinople in 381, the third ecumenical council of Ephesus in 431, the fourth ecumenical council uh, held in Chalcedon in 451, and our last episode, episode rather dealt with the fifth ecumenical council, which was held in Constantinople uh, in year 553. So we're going to be picking up today with our sixth ecumenical council, which will be uh, in Constantinople uh, in year 680. So I'm excited about this podcast episode. Please let somebody know, share, rate, subscribe. Uh, if you're listening on YouTube, uh, please give a share. I think I've noticed that we have a lot of viewers who are watching, but they're not subscribed. Uh, if you were subscribing, uh, that would be a great help to me in the channel. And also, if you want to uh, be a help to the ministry in any kind of way, there are different options there. But hey, let's get started. Good day, everybody. This is Brandon with 238 Media. I just wanted to make sure I took some time to let you know about this great tool that helps me to keep my podcast moving at a really good rate of production. This tool is Anchor by Spotify, and it is probably one of the easiest ways to make a podcast with everything you need all in one place. Anchor has tools that allow you to record your podcast right from your phone or computer. And when hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast on listening platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and a host of other options. It's everything you need in one place to make a podcast. And best of all, it is 100% free. So, hey, let me know what you think. And as always, it's the whole gospel to the whole world by the whole church. As we have discussed with the other ecumenical councils, what you're noticing, as I've stated in other podcasts, the councils are doing this funneling type thing uh, as it relates to the focus of their mission, which the main issues that are being dealt with primarily are Christological in nature. And the Sixth Ecumenical Council of Constantinople in year 680 AD is no exception to this. The Sixth Ecumenical Council uh, convened under Constantine, uh, and it can, uh, consisted of uh, about 170 bishops. And again, this isn't original Constantine. This is like Ivy. Uh, and the main thing that they're going to condemn is going to be the doctrine of monothelitism or monothelitism. And the interesting thing about monothelitism is that what you would notice that some of these varying ideas have a way of going from one side of the pendulum to the other. Now, by definition, monothelitism is a compound Greek word. 
uh, and it really means instant, uh, just essentially one will. Uh, it, this is a particular teaching about the divine and human uh, nature of Jesus Christ uh, that really takes a different view of the Christological composition of how the hypostatic union is understood. Specifically, monothelitism teaches that Christ had two natures, but only one will. So they would be from a historic understanding. Orthodox in their understanding of how the composition of the two natures work, but they just went to a different area and they would say, well, he only had one will that somehow the human nature and the divine nature fused together to form this one singular will. Now, as I have stated before, when I speak to most Trinitarians today, most of them are monophyletites. <laughs> I know a lot of people probably wouldn't like me saying that, but I think this is easily demonstrated when one is looking at St. John 17 and three, for instance, when Jesus is praying, uh, he's saying, uh, now, Father, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world was. Many of them do not see the prayers of Jesus Christ as an explicit expression of the true humanity of Jesus, which is which is problematic because from Trinitarian or Benetarian worldview. By definition, divinity has no need to pray. What is a divine nature praying about? Or what is he, how can he, how can this prayer even be succinct to a need that one could say is in his divinity? And I think it's kind of a misdiagnosis of the operations within the hypostatic union. It's akin to me diagnosing a circulatory issue as a bone issue just because I'm having an issue in one system of my body doesn't mean I'm having an issue with another system of my body, if that makes sense. Uh, and I think that's the same thing. They, they, they grossly miscategorize the prayers of Jesus Christ as something that is expressed from the divine nature. And when you do that, it only gives you one option in my humble opinion, which is canonicism, which canonicism leads one to a, a whole host of problems or subcanoticism, or just primary canoticism. Whenever you have the divine nature changing, which if this is an expression of prayer from the divine nature, you have God emptying his God stuff, which is problematic. It violates the principle of immutability. So I've said all that to say this, that this teaching was pretty much going in the contradictory role with, with how the councils were trying to bring everyone together within the empire to a consistent conciliar thought as it related to the nature of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to see that there is going to be a strong push for a orthodox quote unquote, say this in the context of church history of what is to be understood as the two natures of Jesus Christ. So when we return, we're going to pick up, with uh, the next part of where we are with that. So please enjoy this uh, advertising from our sponsors.
All right, and we're back. Now, as we discussed previously before our break, we have just found ourselves in the position of understanding what the primary issue is, which is monothelitism. And this is a odd position because one of the reasons is, is that it enjoyed a lot of support from some individuals who would have been considered uh, prominent voices of their time. And this is, as I stated earlier, going to be a problem uh, because this could potentially open up the door for uh, other issues that were trying to be stomped out or trying to be uh, hindered pretty much from taking place. And so with this issue of monothelitism, the council was convened, of course, at the behest of the emperor at that time. And what they found within the conversation, the main argument that was being promulgated was that the monothelites argue that Christ has only one will. And the reasoning behind this is quite simple. The reason that they believe he had one will is because they saw that he was one person. And from a logical standpoint, I could see how their logic worked. And with most ideas that are erroneous, like the Trinity of things, there is a very uh, great deal of reasonable uh, logical thinking. So, I think one of the biggest areas of a lot of uh, folks is to assume that because it is wrong, that it is dumb. And these things are not always uh, true of one another. And so the council came together. And of course, the meeting was convened at the behest of the emperor. And the council felt that the approach of monothelitism impaired the fullness of Christ's humanity and that the human nature without human will would be incomplete. And from a oneness Pentecostal worldview, we would totally agree with that. Because if we're saying pretty much as what many of my Unitarian friends, who I respect greatly, a lot of times our Trinitarian friends, but usually when they make this argument, I know they're probably not very good Trinitarians. When they say, in essence, that Christ did not have a true human will. By necessity, we cannot then argue that he was truly human. Because in order to be truly human, he would have to satisfy all of the categories that would deem a person to be human. And without the uh, place of a true human soul, which I would argue that his soul is part and parcel to a true human consciousness or two human minds. This is similar to the uh, Thomas Morris's book, the, uh, the two wills of God or the two minds view, which I would, I would embrace, uh, which interestingly enough, I believe around page 260 something, he uh, actually argued that this understanding could be complementary to a oneness or modalistic monarchian uh, understanding of the nature of God. But in essence, if Christ only had one will, and again, if you're a Trinitarian that believes that, or better than one this person that will believe that within the nature of God, there only exists one will. When he says, not my will be done, 
but your will be done. It makes the high priestly prayers completely nonsense. Because why then would he pray for a will that to not be done that's actually the will of the one who sent him? It's nonsensical. From a oneness standpoint, he's really praying to himself. If you are teaching monothelitism, monothelitism, he really is praying to himself. And I don't see how you would be guilty or would, how you would not fall into the category of a, a uh, what, what, what do they like to say? Uh, Jesus in a flesh suit. That That's if you are a oneness person and you uh, embrace monothelitism, you really have Jesus in a flesh suit. There is no way around that. If you are Trinitarian, and because this was originally a Trinitarian heresy, I thought I wouldn't get to know that. And, and it's interesting enough because the early of all of these heresies, uh, as, as they look at that, that are condemned a little bit after Nicaea are pretty much what you would consider uh, Trinitarian Christological heresies. And so as we look further into this, we have to understand that for the incarnation to be a real thing, he has to have two wheels. And so pretty much in addition to the condemnation that we find of monothelitism, the council uh, anathematized uh, as heretics Pope uh, Honorius, uh, one of Rome, and Sergius, uh, the first of Constantinople, as well as Cyrus of Alexandria, Paul II, and Peter of Constantinople, and Theodore of Paran for their part in the propagating of the heresy of monothelitism. And so this is interesting. Even at this time with these heresies, it really wasn't even their approach to kind of just kill everybody. But we see this, uh, well, let's just get rid of them and push them away. And because of the outcome, there is a commemoration of uh, what they would call the Holy Fathers of the Sixth Ecumenical Council as commemorated on January 23rd. And also on the nice Sunday after Pentecost, the Sunday of the Fathers of the First Sixth Council. Uh, and so this is going to be interesting as we look at what is really going to be one of the last pegs before we get to the seventh ecumenical council, which is going to be the solidification of what is to be understood as the second ecumenical, seven ecumenical councils uh, of the early quote unquote church. And because from a oneness Pentecostal standpoint, I probably don't believe these people are saved. Uh, I would say that, of course, this is speaking from a standpoint of church history. So, hey, if you have enjoyed what you heard, please rate, share, subscribe. Let somebody know. I appreciate your time. And as always, it is the whole gospel to the whole world by the whole church in Jesus' name. He's down the street. Hello? Hey, he's down the street. I don't know. I don't know that. <laughs> All right. What's up? Uh, did you feed him what was in the 
He got some. I gave him uh He had a little few those snack crackers and uh gave him a, a thing to drink. Yeah, his cup was in the refrigerator. I know. I got it. Okay. Alright, Bavish. Okay.